Welcome to Sustainable Minds, exploring the interplay of corporate brand, core beliefs, and ESG, brought to you by Baker. In every episode, we'll investigate how purpose, vision, and values can guide your company's sustainability actions, behaviors, and mindsets. And we'll discuss their impact with the help of ESG-focused guests from around the globe. I'm your host, Rocket. And I'm your host, Gary. Let's get started. Today, we're talking with Gabriel Toomey. Gabriel's a chartered financial analyst, financial risk manager, and the CEO and founder of Responsible Alpha. He's a thematic investment research manager with over 12 years experience and an award-winning ESG analyst. He's won awards almost every year since 2014. He's also a member of various NGO boards and a scientific and a financial technical committees and an advisor applying a scientific and investment technical skills to investors, lenders, exchanges, rating agencies, and companies across many sectors of the real economy to support sustainability and equitability investment strategies. As a CEO of Responsible Alpha, it's an ESG integration investment research firm that supports and advises investors, market participants, businesses, and communities on their transition to a low-carbon, sustainable, and equitable future. Gabriel is also a lecturer at John Hopkins University. He teaches financial, sustainable, world, and ESG integration. He's published over 70 thematic research reports employing ESG integration skills, a couple of peer review papers, and hundreds of news articles on capital markets and ESG. Gabriel graduated from the University of Michigan with an MBA at the Stephen Ross School of Business, a MS in Sustainable Systems specialization, and he did his undergraduate work at Taubman College of Architecture and Urban Planning. Gabriel, welcome to Sustainable Minds. Thank you, Gary, and thank you, Roxanne. Now, I want to start. So I'm curious, the question is, how did you arrive here? So the first question, and you started to tell us some of this, but what did you really like to do when you were a young boy? What sort of fascinated you? That's the perfect question, because we have the idea of the scientist plucking the apple out of the apple tree or the apple falling on Newton's head, what captures your imagination? It's midnight and you're daydreaming at night. You're waking up after having dreams about some idea. And for me, I wanted to protect trees. I did not know how. It was 40 years ago. I was reading John Muir. I was hiking in the woods of northern Minnesota with my family. My stepfather was teaching me how to canoe. My mom was teaching me to bird watch. And I just felt the connection. And at that time, there was no sustainability. Yeah. There was no corporate social responsibility. There was no, none of the vocabulary or the frameworks existed. And so I didn't know what to do. So in high school, I tried something. I helped some, with some friends. We started a, what we would call today a not-for-profit. It was never licensed. It, the money was all managed through the high school. And we raised $30,000 and bought an ambulance and gave it to wow. town in Mexico. Wow. Because that's what you did. I mean, it was fun. 
It was social entrepreneurship, which we now know exists. It is actually something that's being taught in business schools. Right. Children, grandkids, family, friends, parents, grandparents all know these terms. So, but that didn't exist then. So then I worked as in the North Atlantic as a student and as on staff as a junior science officer doing oceanographic research for six months. Got to see the whales, I got to see the seals, I got to see the plastic trash. I had to see whales, a whale carcass that was wrapped in a fishing net and it stunk. And whales were coming from that fishing net like a funeral. You could feel their anger in the air. I did about 9,000 miles maybe at sea. It wasn't a hurricane, but we were in a sheltered area, so it just sounds more dramatic than it was. <laughs> Come off of that boat, and I, I need to go to college. I didn't finish my college school, my school year yet. And so then I got a bit, I was bored in biology and I studied art history and I worked in art history for three years as a consultant because it's about people. So the first part of my, the first part of my career was about the environment. The second part was about people or social. And then my next job, more or less, there were some other jobs in between. We all are waiters and servers and work as cooks in the <laughs> United States. It's part of the, <laughs> when you get your driver's license, have you been a waiter, cook, or server? Yes, you get the driver's license. <laughs> we all have. Was in bond trading. I worked wow. as an assistant for Wells Fargo. That's governance. And so 20 years ago, I started reading the environmental literature, the scientific literature, and realized climate change is here. It's coming. And I need to be prepared. So I got an MBA and a master's of science and a master's in finance and a graduate certificate in sustainable real estate. I don't recommend everybody do that. It's <laughs> too much time and way too much money, right? We, to, we need to be more efficient with resources, mm -hmm. right? And from that, you have three circles, you know, cities, the natural environment, our planet Earth, and business at the intersection of sustainability. And I've sat at that intersection for 17 years as an analyst, as a sometimes a thought leader, most often a partner or a follower, as a team member. And I've worked in many countries around the world on all sorts of different issues. And along that path, worked for banks and fought institutions through the SEC proxy ruling process, worked with not-for-profits, worked with indigenous people around the world. And now I live in Austria, where I run Responsible Alpha. Wow. Great story. So I'm going to ask you what we should talk about next. I have two topics. You wanted to hit the ESG integration which is also a term that you've trademarked, or thematic investment or thematic investment research. What leads into the other here? That's a good question. We were very fortunate. We were at Davos at the World Economic Forum. For us, it was a train trip. So <laughs> one might know that's a bit expensive. We did not stay in Davos. We stayed at a very inexpensive place that I'm not sure I'm telling anybody where it is. But um, <laughs> friends and family can join me next year at the same place. We had a bunch of us there, and we gave six presentations, either moderated or at six events. The Oceans Panel, the Panel on the Future of ESG, the Panel on Re-Architecting Finance, How Does Finance Function, events on agriculture and food, events on connecting to nature. Wow. And that gets us to the answer to the question, because it is a chicken or egg. Environmental social governance is a term that's been around since 2004. Understood. Sustainability has had a definition that we commonly use since 1987. 
and the Brutman Report. Corporate social responsibility predates that a bit, but the first branded big report on corporate social responsibility was in the late 90s by Shell. Interesting. Mm. Ah. Lots of questions there, of course. And corporate philanthropy as a guaranteed percentage of net income that would be given back to the community goes back to the necessarily exactly the Dayton family. The Dayton family is a family that started Dayton Hudson's and then started Target. But it goes back partly to that, what you found in Minneapolis, St. Paul, around a community where families who started companies like General Mills and Dayton's and others would give a percentage of their income. But it also goes, out, goes back much earlier. The governance of ESG, one can colloquially say, started in 1933, when the 1933 Securities Act was enabled by Congress and signed by FDR in response to the lack of governance in the capital markets in the 1920s and the 1929 crash. That was followed up by the 1934 Securities Act and the 1940s Security Act. But we can go back farther for ESG, if you define it as sustainability, and go back to the 1790s and 1800s United States and 18-teens when the Quakers and other religious communities in the United States would not buy cotton clothes that were sewn by slaves. We can even go farther back in time to the John Wesley and others. So the history of ESG, while it has a new name, goes back generations. And the point on that is, how can I, as a financial analyst, trained and educated through the CFA Institute program, not be, not engage in ESG? How can I not look at the governance of a company? How can I not want to understand, is the CEO, is she the same, per, is she also the chairwoman? That's governance. How many independent chair people are, many people, independent board of directors are there? How does the governance committee at the board of directors intersect with the risk committee? How does that flow through how the corporation functions on my behalf? As a shareholder in the United States, we elect the board of directors who then hire the C-suite, you call them. So ESG has been around for a very, very long time. And there are luminaries like Tim Smith, it's extraordinary, who led the fight in the early 1970s with anti-apartheid and getting highlighting Coca-Cola and others and trying to get them out of South Africa. And there have been many other companies like that and many other individuals like that. So we know there's a very deep history here. Now, just like that, there's also deep history around thematic investing. Thematic investing is when I invest with a focus. It can be on water. It can be on land. It can be on timber. We have timber investments in the United States that go back many, many generations. The agriculture investments go back many, many generations. Now, these previously existing models are being updated now to incorporate the environment, what we call environmental social governance, which also has some new criteria, just as climate, scope one, two, and three emissions, or might have biodiversity risk, or indigenous people's rights, or issues around gender and fair wages, or issues around LGBTQ+, issues around diversity and inclusion, and of course, around governance. Now, then the question is why? Why do we do this? We as investment professionals incorporate ESG, whether it's formally part of our terms of reference or informally, because that's just how you do the business. It's standard practice. It should be because it ultimately saves you money. I'll give you an example, Roxanne. 2013, 
how many ESG analysts at a large fund, global brand, doing my ESG work, sitting at a desk staring at a computer. That's all I do. And I realized that I had read in a not-for-profit report that lumber liquidators was importing timber that was stolen out of protected areas in Russia, importing it through China, and labeling it as Eurasian oak. Lumber liquidators at the time was a U.S. company out of Richmond, Virginia, valued at $2 billion. This is a U.S. company committing fraud. God. And the one hand, yes, it was destroying the biodiverse rich habitat where the Siberian tiger and the Amur leopard live. Think of the snowy Siberian north. It'd be so beautiful to visit, right? Along the Chinese border near Korea. But at the same time, they were lying to customs agents. Oh my God. If they're lying there, what else are they lying about? We had a $5 million position in the company. I spoke to my portfolio manager and we sold. At that time, they were valued about $115 a share. The last I looked, I think it was $7 a share. Wow. Think of the money you saved from using common sense, which is what is that company really doing? Which is when you look at the numbers, companies are more than numbers. So ESG is about common sense, understanding what the company does. Is it the right company for me to fit inside my portfolio? So ESG and thematic investment go back decades and decades. It's been relabeled and it'll be relabeled again another 10 years, it'll be another name for it. But common sense is how people make money on Wall Street and protect your interests as a shareholders and investors to appropriate risk management. Wow, absolutely. And let's transition that to responsible alpha and ESG integration and the work you do there. So what we work with, we have four categories of services, but we just apply that common sense logic to different institutions to help them figure out what they're going to do in this world that we're living in now. We're living in a world where right now the parts per million of carbon dioxide is 422. Parts per billion of methane have increased significantly, about 60%. So is parts per billion nitrous oxide. We're dealing with a world where was it one day? Was it, I forget what day it was, like July 29th of 2019, over a billion shellfish died off the coast of Seattle because the ocean was too hot. Too hot. We're dealing with a world where, think of the heat days and the extreme weather we have now. You know, the wet gets wetter and the dry gets drier and the snowier and the cold gets colder. That's extreme weather. That's climate change. What's happening in California right now? A portion of it can be attributed to climate change. We have a new category of science called attribution science, and we can contribute a portion of, the, of what's happening versus the models and compare baseline versus fact and see the distinction and compare any measure that versus climate change. Then what we can also say is we know the total emissions since 1750, and we can actually look and say which company had the most emissions over since 1750. Yes, these companies were serving are good as citizens, are good as society. They're providing us the oil, the natural gas, the resources we use every day. It's a mutual, it's just unfortunately a symbiotic process. But what we do at Responsible Alpha is we unimpact that scientific language, the scientific models, make it intelligible and actionable and easy for our clients to understand. So in our first 12 months, our clients include Nestle, Walton Family Foundation, which is Walmart, Inter-American Development Bank, 
Frack Action, which is an, an NGO out of New York, some hedge funds, and many others. What we do is we work with, we have an executive education set of products that we provide. We have products around ESG and finance, how to incorporate ESG into portfolio management for hedge funds and others. Make it simple and easy and applicable. So people know when it's not applicable. That's almost more important to know than when it is applicable. When you know when it's not applicable, fine. So then allows people to be creative about where when to apply it, right? That's exciting. <laughs> and then we help clients with the raw material to uh, raw material supply chains to package products. And then finally, we're working with real estate companies. We have a dynamic team. It's really exciting. We walk the talk. We don't, we travel as little as possible. We measure our emissions. We offset what we cannot offset. And we're completely transparent with how, who makes what, how much we make and how that all works. And my team is so tired of me and staff calls going on and on about what's the account balance. And so they know everything. About the <laughs> and we're become, we're in the process of becoming an employee owned and we're a corporation out of Delaware. And that was the purpose and why I set it up. That ties into what I was going to ask you about what you say on your website ESG integration requires foresight and action, which forms the basis responsible Alpha's business ethic and guides our research and, and analysis. Share with us about the business ethic. Share with us how you've got a company of 20 some odd people. How do you conduct yourselves in an ethical? Give us another example of that. It's a good question. There's a lot of listening. There's a lot of transparency. But those are actions that yet process, but you're asking about an example. On the one hand, we don't accept contracts from everybody. So we had an institution try to hire us at the night. There'd been a, probably a nice payday there. I don't know. And I asked them, who is funding them? And they said, you have to sign this NDA. You can never say this NDA existed. And you can never admit in your life you've ever had this meeting. Oh, my God. We each, there's a menu at the Chinese restaurant. That's one of the items on the menu of the Chinese restaurant. I'm not going to order that one. <laughs> that was very simple. End of story. Wow. Now, the other way, externally facing, I'm smiling and laughing here, and that we, we only work with institutions that are committed to a transition to a low carbon, sustainable, and equitable future. That's our tagline. It's in our corporate charter. It's, in, it's registered with the state of Delaware. In our corporate charter, low carbon, very clear what that is. That's the climate data. Sustainable sustainable development goals, the broad, the how do we make the broad set of criteria is 17 goals and 232 metrics and targets. How do we take that in from those frameworks and help society become a better society? If society's better for me, it's going to be better for you. And then it's going to be better for you, it's going to be better for me. And it's going to be better for all of our pocketbooks. <laughs> That's it. There's a re, there is a, a regenerative model there. It's going to be better for our kids. It's going to be better for the planet. And then on equitable, which is the third part of our tagline, that's environment ESG, environmental social governance. So we take it very seriously. And that's one way from an external process. Internally, we have accepted no outside capital. We're self-funded. We're not. We're never going to accept outside capital. I'd rather sell the company so my colleagues can make money first and get, take outside capital. I want them to become owners. We're in the process of setting that up. The hurdle there, just from a business and operations perspective, is that me as CEO, I'm also HR, finance, administration, marketing, everything, because the team gets to do all the fun stuff. They do the, find the deals and do the consulting. And uh, 
So that that's part of that's a process that we're working on. We also done a lot to bring in a lot of interns from all over the world and young people and people in, who want to transition their careers at different stages, different age, you know, whether 20, 30, or 40s. And that's really exciting. A lot of them got hired, which is good news. That says we've done a good <laughs> job. And finally, we're completely transparent with our work. So if you hire us or someone wants to collaborate with us, you get the model. The model is only good if it's replicable by you, not replicable by me. Because then if it's replicable only by me, then you are forced to hire me again. That's not our model. So we're part corporation and part social movement. <laughs> wow, that is incredible. I mean, you are really a model. I mean, you're modeling for your customers where this all needs to go. That's what we hope. Yeah, we're, we try. It's hard. Every day is a lesson in humility and humbleness. Sure. I'm just curious. Have you, as a CEO of a corporation, have you ever seen an aha moment through the work you are doing for them, sort of sharing with them realities of the world that they're living at first, that they kind of were into this thing because they do care somewhat about a greater good. But through your work and your deep research and analysis, you sort of bring information to them that kind of rings the bell. Or is there something that you do that creates this aha moment? Yeah. First of all, it's we. We've done this, right? It's a team, which has been really nice. There. I'm thinking about recent engagement with a real estate company. On the one hand, we have a lot of technical knowledge that's very helpful around capital markets for real estate companies. Other hand, we also push them on what about replacing that material A with material B, physical material substitution. And that is growing. It's a really exciting relationship. See how that grows. So there we're pushing them on the one hand where we speak a standard boring language and another hand we can add in cherries on ice cream and with another client we spend a lot of time talking about how packaging itself it's not sustainable packet sustainable packaging is not good enough packaging needs to be regenerative packaging needs to restore our earth packaging needs to be made out of materials that make our soil better are healthier for our plants and animals so talking about reversing where we are gone with microplastics in another context, I was at an investment bank presentation. I was giving an investment banking presentation to a conference. The speaker before me had been the former CEO of Unilever. And you know, Roxanne, I'm sitting there like, but I knew what I was supposed to say, but I'm like, what am I going to say? It's always a bit different. <laughs> I kept on thinking about Fulmar. It's like a little albatross. And the Fulmar, the Northern Beridian Fulmar, the Fulmar that lives in the Bering Strait, in Alaska and Canada, I'm Alaska and I'm Russia. A recent academic study had looked at all these birds that died, and everyone had died from plastic. And they died not just by ingestion of plastic and how that clogged their digestive tract. They died because the microplastics at the molecular level, plastic became a petri dish for other diseases to live on. So that's why they died from strep, E. coli and other diseases. And here I am in front of all these asset managers and banks from all over the world. And I was so proud that that was probably the first time that that bird species ever got written up in a cell side research paper on Wall Street. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
but it's so, the reality. Yeah. And it brings reality. to life the scientific, just sort of objective facts that don't necessarily touch you and make you realize that you're part of this problem. And what can you do to reverse it? True. We are all part of the problem, but we're all part of the problem in very different portions. Yes. So it's maybe better if we might agree to this, that a percentage of the problem is mine. Some of us, the percentage is hundreds and thousands of times more than for others, or in some cases, millions of times more. And so understanding where those levers lay and talking with those institutions and ways and those individuals that make sense to them and talking to them, finally, going back to ES integration, only looking at short-term three to five-year analytics. Capital markets will say they're interested in after in anything after three to five years, but they're not. Partly because if I'm a f- analyst and I switch from, no, Roxanne, from company A to company B, my analysis record often will not follow with me. In some cases it might, but often it will not. So in that case, I said ExxonMobil was a great name. I'm not picking on them, just a, a common name we've all heard. <laughs> you know, 10 years ago, does that decision follow me for the next 10 years? And so we need to frame ESG risk using materiality for what is material today, the next three to five years. But materiality has to be material to the corporation and to the community and to the environment and governance the frameworks we live in. We need to also understand at times it doesn't always work. Is not every toxic spill by a train company? Think of what's happened in Ohio. Yes. It's going to be, to be material to that train company's bottom line. But oh my God, is it material to those families? Oh my God, is it material to that environment, to those farmers? Oh my God. So true. And so at times we can't get lost in does it have to be material to the company, also material to the community? Really, having been shared the virtual stage during the COVID period with many different people and leaders on and globally produced new events, I think of one leader and she was like, the background level of cancer rates in her community were 50, 50 times higher than normal in the United States. That's because of the chemical pollution and toxic chemicals in her environment chemical company might say that's not that one extra case of cancer is not material but to miss sharon levine is very material yeah it's complicated (laughs) it's really complicated where did you see the turn in esg investing where this rise has just in the last couple of years what do you think happened to make that happen many things happened but if we think of listening to orchestra or think of like Bolero's, you know, Ravel, you know what I mean? I recognize that, that tune. <laughs> yes. <laughs> there was a speech by the governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carney, in September 2015 called Tragedy of Horizons. Tragedy of Horizons. It was a play on the concept tragedy of the commons. We don't know who owns what, that commons, that area, that collectively owned air, water, land resource often becomes degraded. At the same time, when there's strong social structures around, in the context of what occurred often in England, those commons 
or be protected. But we found that also happening in the United States. The tragedy of the horizon says, we may not know the cost of climate change in the future, but we certainly know that it'll be much cheaper and less risky to address today. And with the bank, the governor of the Bank of England gives a speech. ESG went from an outside model to an inside model. Conversation changed. That's when that drum beats began. September 2015. The drum beat we hear now around ESG. There have been other songs around ESG that have been played before, like with Tim Smith and many others. From Barbara Krumsiak, who used to be the CEO of Calvert, the first woman CEO on Wall Street. Amy Dominey, Dominey Social Impact Fund, when she started Dominey Social Impact Fund. And Leslie Samuel Rick, the Green Central Capital Management, and many others. But that speech changed the conversation. Wow, I didn't know that. So, Gabriel, we're doing this podcast again in, with, in five years with you. What's going to be the topic? What's going to be the focus? It's a good question. I want to be hopeful, but I'm not very hopeful. I'm a realist. The embedded emissions we have in the, with the infrastructure that we already have in place will only increase the emissions that we are, that will be, on, will continue to increase the emissions. We have carbon dioxide, methane, nitrous oxide, and particularly the long-lived industrial gases. We'll see more glacier melt. We'll see significant more melt of ice, um, you know, the, the glaciers in, in Antarctica and Greenland, and some have slipped into the sea. We'll see more geopolitical risk. Some of the small island states will continue to see their shores wash away. And I, some of the island states have already begun to buy land in Australia and elsewhere to remove their nations because their countries are disappearing now. We'll see more hurricanes hitting the Gulf Coast and Florida. On the one hand, where I find hope is that will people based decisions on science and data, that would be good because then we can learn to work together to solve these problems. And we have the technology today to solve climate change. We don't need more technology. That's mostly correct. It's one hmm. and one or two things we need to change that we need new technologies on, but we have the technology right now, right now. Where the risk lays is will we continue to degrade or have our civic infrastructure degrade, become a conversation based less on fact and more on soundbite. Soundbites are not what one bases municipal planning on, is not what one bases portfolio management on. We need to rely on, on and trust the scientists in our community and have those conversations around science and data and separate data from belief. Both are important. Data generates knowledge, belief, generates faith, two separate processes. One can have data and knowledge and be a scientist, and one can have belief and faith and be, have a spiritual connection and have that be the, inside the same person. And to be accept that that's part of the human sort of condition, human psychology. So in 2030, are we gonna have rigorous scientific-based decisions and knowledge the knowledge that informs our capital markets processes or how our companies function. Yes, on the one hand. And I hope we do that. I hope we are able to separate the noise, the wheat from the chafe, if you would, because we are in the middle of a, a remarkable time right now. We've moved beyond the news cycle. We are doubling the amount of data 
every two years, every 18 months. Just like Gutenberg taught and showed us how to take movable type from which to create the Bible and, and spread knowledge originally out of the German states. We're now in a moment where we, the movable type is data coming out of satellites, GIS, other sources. And for the first time, I can in real time map my investment portfolio to what exists around the world. Wow. I could do that five years from now ago. Wow. I can map municipal bond issuance, something as arcane and abstract or not as often studied as municipal bonds. And I can tell you that Plaquemine Parish, at the very tip of the Mississippi, the lowest lying part of the Mississippi River Delta in New Orleans and Louisiana, I can tell you which asset manager is has the biggest exposure to those municipal bonds in their portfolio in the world. Wow. So we know that, and that's not hard. So we can, what we'll see in, by 2030 is a much more aggressive use of data for decision-making. And we'll also we'll probably see a much more aggressive counter-reaction of those who want to make decisions not based on data. At the same time, the risks from climate change, biodiversity collapse, water pollution, and chemical dispersion, think plastic, microplastics are only going to increase. And that together creates a more uncertain world with more geopolitical risk. Now, that's not me saying that. Please, it's not. That's what's in the shared socioeconomic pathways, these climate jargon, which are in the Intergovernmental Panel of Climate Change Risk Reports. And you can use hundreds and hundreds of models that demonstrate this. And you can back test them and for another podcast. <laughs> I think so. Go on. Well, I, I think that what's interesting is that the data, which is showing the writing on the wall, at the same time, the the opportunity, I mean, that's the challenge. The opportunity is not looking back, but looking forward in the sense of innovation, that the creativity, I mean, it's just, there's a contradiction force that's sort of going on between these two, because as you say, it can be very depressing. But at the same time, if we focus on the opportunities, I mean, personally, one of the things that worries me so much is when they've politicized, like they are doing in the United States right now, ESG, it's crazy, but we need governments that start regulating these things that are going to really provide that structure for actionable change and require it. And how are we ever going to get that when they're just playing on people's emotions and not looking at the science? Well, that's a very good and astute observation, Sam. So let's step back and discuss the facts. The world's largest economies are all have either put in place ESG recording criteria, climate criteria, and sustainable development goal criteria, or are in the process of doing so. It's required by law in Japan. It's starting to become required by law in China. It's required in Germany. It's required in the EU. It's required in California at the state level. It's going to be required by the U.S. government. It's required by cities, city of New York. So is this why the state of Wyoming chose not to pass an ESG, anti-ESG law, because they were worried if they did that, 
they would lose access to the capital markets that service their other financial products that the state of Wyoming issues, the municipal debt. Sure, we need to have a rich conversation and we need to have it based on facts and improvements of process and around democratization and sharing the methodologies and data so people can make better and informed decisions in an easier and a more effective manner. And we need to be able to communicate in ways that make sense to them. We don't need, that's what scientists are not good at doing. Is they're very good at communicating with a select silo, but not as strong, someone might suggest, with communicating with a slightly broader audience. Right? <laughs> Snark there, hope that yes. comes through on the podcast. So I would just ask, if I'm a corporation, do you want to do business in the EU? Well, you have the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive. <laughs> It covers a broad range of ESG topics. It's over 1,100 disclosures. Okay, I don't want to work in the EU. You don't want to work in Germany. Well, the Germany Supply Chain Due Diligence Act has a similar set of criteria. Okay, I'm not going to work in Germany. I'm going to work in Japan. I'm going to sell my services in Japan. Their law is not, was just signed into law in December. Okay, how about Singapore? Same thing. Where am I going to go around the world to do business? When Business executives, investment professionals, and leaders around the world are saying, this is our future. We are coming together to address this. You know, Larry, the CEO of BlackRock, Larry Fink, yes. was at Davos, and he said a, made a sort of funny comment. It's like, yeah, we had $4 billion in outflow because of anti-ESG concepts. We had $400 billion of inflow. <laughs> Enough said. So... That community will continue to do what it does. They're going to disenfranchise their their own communities, make it more difficult for the communities and those municipalities to issue debt. They'll cost their communities more money to issue debt through regional banks or other banks versus the larger New York banks. It will make their investment processes for their pension funds more risky. Here's an example. In Louisiana, you have the Industrial Tax Exemption Program. It provides a tax relief ad valorem tax on property if I build out a facility, an industrial facility in Louisiana, I get tax relief. Well, if that same facility then emits the toxic chemicals that now are known in Louisiana as Cancer Alley, where you have cancer rates in some place at 50, 50 times greater than baseline United States. That's US government data. That's not me as an analyst. I, I know as an analyst where to find the data, I don't make the data. You can find the data too. I can show you. Email me. I'll show you exactly where it comes from. So you get the tax break on the facility. I'm the local school teacher. Part of my pension fund is managed by the state of Louisiana. The pension fund invests in my local municipal bond because I get a tax break there. That, that, that bond is funding the facility. And you get a negative feedback loop and I get cancer. But because I, there's limited bonding authority by that municipality, there's, there's more money going to the industrial giants than it's going to the hospital. There's more money going to the chemical plant than they're going to the police and emergency medical services. Why does ExxonMobil have 42 municipal bonds valued at $2.6 billion in its capital stack? They'll have elaborate machinations to confuse us and explain to us why. That's what's going to happen. Those same communities that are in the Gulf Coast that are already being hit by the storms are the ones that are going to hurt even more because their politicians are hurting them. I don't mean they were doing it deliberately. A lot of people are not aware of 
the unintended consequences. I understand that. And this, we have a broad, wonderful civic debate in the United States among political leaders. And that's exciting. It's very nice. That's what we want to have in the United States. But we, we need to have some, a little bit deeper thought. Someone might say, well, that's true, Gabriel, but then I'm bringing jobs. Okay. Let's look at Arkema, the French chemical giant. They took a tax break for independent school district, Laporte, L-A-P-O-R-T-E, in Galveston Bay. In 2011, they limited their property tax to $30 million. I mean, the, the property valuation of $30 million in exchange for five jobs. Five jobs? jobs five jobs. The jobs had to be a percentage above the base rate. The base rate is $52,000 a year. And if the jobs are $65,000 a year, they got the tax break. $52,000 to $65,000, five jobs. School district. That facility blew up, caught fire during Hurricane Harvey. 21 first responders are permanently injured. <gasps> and that court case was thrown out. Not one analyst on Wall Street covered them. Oh my God. That school, that chemical facility that blew up is next to the school. Who's in the school? Our children, our friends teach there. That's an example of what we see for negative consequences. I'm glad we're from California. <laughs> At least there's some regulation. Oh, uh, my God. Gabriel, we're running out of time here, but before Jesus. we we draw this, and I won't say to a close because we want to talk to you again very soon. Yes. Anything today that we didn't cover that you would like to cover? Where there's hope is around collaboration and community and coordination and transparency. We don't know unless we don't try. The only person who said, Gabriel, go raise $30,000 and buy an ambulance was my mom. <laughs> Minnesota. My mom, Susan McGuire. She's the only person who said, hey, you can do this. Because it's impossible. And if you don't try, you don't try. You don't know what's going to happen. I graduated my high school. The next year, I think it was, 60 kids went down there to build an, an build an orphanage. How did that impact those children who were in the orphanage and the families? How did it impact the kids that flew down there to do that work? I don't know. I don't even know who they are. We don't know unless we try. And that's why we're in this moment. We're born to be here to create these solutions, to learn to be a community, to work together. And we're very, very strong when we do that. We're indefeatable. Fantastic. Wow. Thank gave you us so a lot much. to think about. <laughs> gave us a lot to think about. We Thank you for your work. Thank you for your Thank time you for today. Time. Yeah. Uh, we do look forward to another conversation very soon. Anytime. I can bring my colleagues and have a great fun. We can be, there's lots of people I know too, if you oh. want. To interview them. Absolutely. Maybe. Absolutely. Yeah. That yeah. sounds interesting. Yes, it does. Let's talk about that. Yeah, let's talk about it. Thanks, Gabriel. Thanks, Gabriel. Thank you, Gary. Bye. Greatly appreciate Bye. it. Hey, thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Sustainable Minds wherever you get your podcasts. And please do live a review if you like what we're doing. It helps others discover the show. And of course, we want more listeners. If you want to find out more about how we can help you evolve your corporate brand, culture, and ESG, head to bakerbrand.com. See you on the next episode of Sustainable Minds, exploring the interplay of corporate brand, core beliefs, and ESG.